Good evening. Last week on the History of Medicine, we wrapped up the story of Alec Fleming, along with the Oxford team, all of who together made the miracle of penicillin happen. Once they started the antibiotic revolution, many other scientists immediately began to explore the possibility of other new antibiotics. In 1939, Selman A. Waxman was on a hunt. He sought not game animals, but was instead on, quote, a new type of hunt, one of the most peculiar and exciting that man has ever undertaken. How can a mere desire to kill wild animals, whether they be birds or rabbits, crocodiles or behemoths, compare with the search for microbes which might yield chemical substances that have the capacity to combat such devastating human diseases, unquote. These are, of course, his own words from his autobiography. Interestingly, Waxman differs very heavily from Fleming in his background and his methods. If you remember, Fleming chanced on the antibiotic effects of the penicillium mold more or less by accident, while studying immunology in his lab. Waxman instead had an extensive background in soil microbiology. It seemed a bit strange to me at first that such a background would lead to investigating antibiotics, but Waxman does a pretty good job of explaining the logic in his autobiography. He explains that in many years of digging in soil and compost, he thought, where do all the germs go? All disease-causing microbes at some point eventually must find their way into the soil, either by excretion or by corpses. It's just the cycle of life. But all of those bacteria have to go somewhere. From his research, Waxman knew that those germs fade very quickly, and in general, we kind of know this too. Dirt is not usually toxic. However, this leads to possibilities. Either those bacteria can live in the soil, or something else in the soil is destroying them. In 1932, one of Waxman's students, one René Dubot, found another bacteria in soil that produced an enzyme which dissolves the outside of the pneumococcus germ. From there, Dubot kept going, and in 1939, showed that by systematically searching through soil microbes, you could find a number of microbes which can kill disease-producing germs. And not only that, but you could grow them, harvest the relevant chemicals, and then use them as therapies for disease. Each of those steps individually were not groundbreaking and had been done in the past, but to put all of them together with the end goal of finding new antibiotic agents was revolutionary. Dubot also found a few compounds, named tyrothricin and gramocytin, which killed gram-positive bacteria. Unfortunately, they did so in ways that also killed animal cells, which made them possible for use in external infections of the skin at best, but they would be deadly if they were injected. Waxman assembled a team at Rutgers University from my home state of New Jersey, including diligent PhD student Albert Schatz, who we'll come back to later. They got to work all through the 1930s. As with some of our previous scientists, they put in a ludicrous amount of work. To understand just how long this process took, I've taken a quote again from Waxman himself describing his public addresses. Often, he would be asked about how he discovered streptomycin, and if it was accidentally discovered, like the famous story of Fleming and his penicillin. To quote Waxman, My usual reply was as follows. No, not quite. We went about it the hard way. We isolated, freshly, some 10,000 cultures of different microbes. These were tested for their activity against bacteria. 10% of them were found to possess such potentiality, thus giving us a total of 1,000 active cultures. The latter were now grown various liquid media to find those which had the capacity to liberate freely the substances possessing such activity. 10% were found to yield such substances. 
This gave us 100 promising cultures. Since the active substances produced by these cultures were unknown, and since they all require different chemical manipulations for isolation and purifications, we finally succeeded in developing procedures for the isolation of 10% of them, thus giving us a total of 10 new compounds. When these were tested for their therapeutic activity in animals, some of them were found to be too toxic, others were not very active in the body, or did not possess the desirable kind of activity. Only one of these proved to be a successful agent, streptomycin. I kind of love his slight dig at Fleming, implying that Fleming had it easy and was just lucky. But wait, there's just a little more to add on there. Quote, This, of course, is only a story, since by this time we must have isolated and tested some 100,000 cultures. Still, it is close enough to the truth. Unquote. Waxman definitely has a flair for the dramatic. Among the hundreds of thousands of bacteria, Waxman and company's work turned up a few different compounds that seemed promising. First of major note was a chemical that they dubbed actinomycin, which had some antibiotic properties, was a red pigment, soluble in organic solvents, and a deadly toxin to animals. You can imagine that it might have been quite a chore to go through thousands of samples, and even when finding something promising, hit a wall somewhere in the middle of that long process I described. I really admire their perseverance. Next, they find streptothricin, which had antibiotic properties, and was at least less toxic. Unfortunately, it destroyed kidney function in humans, which we figured out by extremely premature testing on four human volunteers. However, Waxman and his cohorts figured they were on the right track, and so they kept studying similar compounds. When I say they, I perhaps should really say Albert Schatz kept studying similar compounds. If you remember, he was a PhD student who started working with Waxman when all this went down. He spent his off hours while serving the Air Force in the lab, and even after being discharged, also in the lab, from 1942 through 1943. Schatz actually took a pay cut from the military to keep working in Waxman's lab. He received just $40 a month, which is, in today's money, about $650, well below minimum wage, while working far more than 40 hours a week anyway. By his own account, Quote, During the four-month interval between June and October 1943, I worked day and night, and often slept in the laboratory. I prepared my own media, and washed and sterilized the glassware I used. End quote. However, he did the work, convinced that the compounds he studied might just reveal an elusive new antibiotic that could target gram-negative bacteria, which had very different cell walls from gram-positive bacteria. Some of those were the most prolific killers in history, like cholera, and our old friend Yersinia pestis, responsible for the bubonic plague. Since targeting dangerous bacteria was the ultimate goal, and therefore how Schatz was testing, Waxman ordered him to relocate to an isolated basement for testing, in order to keep all these dangerous diseases away from everyone else. This unfortunately made Schatz's job even worse, for fear of an outbreak. However, finally, on October 19, 1943, his work paid off. A bacteria called Actinomyces griseus was found to counteract tuberculosis bacterial growth. Like our old friend Heatley, Schatz set up a makeshift system to mass-produce his new compound, which he dubbed streptomycin. If you recall, that's the compound that Waxman was going on about in that long quote from earlier. But testing in live organisms required a more advanced lab that can be provided at Rutgers. Instead, they collaborated with researchers at Mayo Clinic, who were incredibly interested in a potential cure for tuberculosis or really any gram-negative disease, which currently were not targetable by any other drug. 
It took poor shots another five weeks of work to gather the measly 10 grams of streptomycin requested, but in April 1944, Mayo Clinic began animal testing on some very unfortunate guinea pigs. Results, luckily, were incredibly promising, though, showing effectiveness against bubonic plague, tularemia, shigellosis, and most importantly, tuberculosis, as Mayo Clinic was looking for. However, this little trial was only done with four animals. They needed to supersize this thing. To fill this need, Merck stepped in. At this point, World War II is raging, and Merck, a massive pharmaceutical company that is still around to this day, is fully committed to the production of penicillin. The scientific teams at Merck were initially hesitant to invest time and money into a new drug that might not work, and worse, wouldn't help with the war effort, since most infections of war wounds are caused by gram-positive bacteria, as opposed to the gram-negative bacteria that streptomycin targets. However, George Merck, with perhaps a little more foresight than his staff, overruled them. The results were decisive. Again, our unfortunate test subjects were guinea pigs, 49 this time in total. 25 infected guinea pigs were given streptomycin every 6 hours for 61 days, the others were not. Of the 25 treated guinea pigs, only 2 had died compared to 17 of the untreated animals. After a minor dispute over publishing order, Waxman was able to publish first, followed quickly by the Mayo team. More importantly though, Waxman was able to obtain the patent. This actually wasn't supposed to happen. Per a 1939 agreement with Rutgers, Merck actually owned the patent on streptomycin, as they had been funding Waxman's group for ages. The decision on Merck's part to allow such a valuable patent to be held instead by Rutgers is initially mystifying. But you have to consider the times. It was war. Not only that, but a particularly technological war, and the Allies had large concerns about the development of biological weapons by the Axis. George Merck, as the head of the War Research Service, would almost certainly have heard intelligence reports about such biological weapons that might be in development, and the best guess of historians today is that Merck put patriotism ahead of profit. If Merck did not have the patent, production could be ramped up much faster, as any corporation could get in on production immediately, an absolute necessity if a biological weapon were deployed. Whatever Merck's motivations, on February 9, 1945, Waxman and Schatz jointly filed for a patent on streptomycin. Remember that now. Both of them are on this patent. A few months later, Patricia Thomas was the first patient to receive streptomycin to treat tuberculosis, and within a few months, she went home, completely cured. For Waxman, this was the start of a long, triumphant rise. In 1946, he travels to Europe, where he is presented with the first of 22 honorary doctoral degrees he will receive. Tack on top of that some 67 prizes, including a little-known Nobel Prize in Medicine. Time, the magazine, then profiles him with an article titled Man of the Soil, and a dozen newspapers across the country hail Waxman as the discoverer of this new miracle drug. Waxman slowly but surely becomes a national hero, almost on the level of Fleming in the UK. You will notice, however, that someone is missing from the story. Albert Schatz, the PhD student who did much of the physical labor involved in the discovery, and again, who jointly owns the patent, was notably absent from all of this fanfare. It was to be a point of conflict for years to come. When he expressed his concerns to his old boss, Schatz received a reply that, to me, reads very snarky. Quote, you know quite well that we gave you all the credit that any student can ever hope to obtain for the contribution that you have made to the discovery of streptomycin. 
you know quite well that the methods for the isolation of streptomycin had been worked out in our laboratory completely long before your return from the army, namely for streptothricin. End quote. As you can imagine, this snarky letter didn't exactly pacify shots. A later letter reads just as tone-deaf to me. Quote, You must therefore be fully aware of the fact that your own share in the solution of the streptomycin problem was only a small one. You were one of many cogs in a great wheel in the study of antibiotics in the laboratory. There were a large number of graduate students and assistants who helped me in this work. They are my tools, my hands, if you please. End quote. I can't say for sure how much credit Schatz deserves, but considering that the patent was held jointly between Waxman and Schatz, it seems odd and definitely a bit condescending to me that Waxman would describe Schatz as a mere cog. I have no doubt that both of these men were brilliant, but I definitely feel that Waxman could have thrown him an extra bone without too much trouble. To say that Schatz felt slighted is a bit of an understatement, and in 1950 he actually filed a suit in federal court. There are two reasons for this. One was the previously discussed overlooking of shots when it came to recognition and prestige, but the second was much more quantitative. As it turns out, back in 1946, Waxman had signed an agreement with Rutgers that would provide him with 20% of royalties from licensing the rights to manufacture streptomycin. However, Waxman completely failed to include shots on this deal. By 1950, just four years after publication, Waxman had earned himself about $350,000 from this deal, in 1950 money. Converted to today's dollars, that's about $3.5 million, which is a heck of a paycheck for four years. The lawsuit did not go well for Waxman. The patent application again had him and Schatz listed as co-discoverers. The original papers, published that detailed the discoveries of streptomycin, both listed the author's as Albert Schatz, then Elizabeth Bougie, who was another graduate student, and then Selman Waxman, in that order, which usually indicates that Schatz and Bougie were more responsible for the work. Waxman claimed in court that it was his position to give students first position on papers to help careers, but he only did so twice in his entire time as a professor. These two streptomycin papers that Schatz co-authored. The end result was a settlement without trial, a tacit acknowledgement that he would have lost in court. As a result, Schatz would receive 3% of the royalties going forward, about $12,000 a year, and a one-time payment of $125,000 for foreign patent rights. Again, converting to today's dollars, that's about $125,000 per year in royalties, and $1.3 million in the one-time payment. Waxman was given 10%, half of his original 20 and the remaining 7% was divided amongst all the remaining lab workers, even down to the dishwasher, which I feel like was a nice touch and probably a very pleasant surprise to a few involved. One would hope that this would then be the end of the dispute, but no, the drama dragged on, and the suit probably only created more bad blood if I'm being honest. In 1952, the Nobel committees awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine to Waxman, and Waxman alone. Not only that, but Waxman failed to mention Schatz a single time in his Nobel lecture, going out of his way to pretend that Schatz just didn't exist. To be fair, though, Schatz was certainly not trying to patch things up either. To his dying day, he refused to acknowledge that Waxman had made any other major discoveries, both before and after Schatz's time at the lab. 
He insisted that he was suppressed for his attempts to claim his just dues, but it's also understandable that other departments might hesitate to hire somebody who had sued his thesis advisor, and even sent an open letter to the King of Sweden to try to sabotage the Nobel Prize ceremony. These guys were frankly petty as heck. Ultimately, both of these men held a massive grudge for a long time out of a misguided feeling of indignation and single ownership of streptomycin as a discovery. I'm disappointed in both of them, really, for failing to see the bigger picture, that science is often a collaboration between a great number of people, and in this case, literally hundreds of chemists, biologists, and scientists from Rutgers, Mayo, and Merck all contributed to the discovery of streptomycin. Schatz probably deserved better than he initially got, but at some point you should really just let go. Excluding people from stories and trying to sabotage Nobel ceremonies is unbecoming, and while it is entertaining, these two make me miss Fleming's humble antics. With that, we'll put the stories of Waxman and Schatz to rest, at least for this podcast. They have done their part in discovering streptomycin, the next miracle drug in our lineup so far. However, there is a second story to be told of how streptomycin went on to become the first cure for tuberculosis, a scourge of humanity to this day, but especially earlier on in our history. Thanks for listening. Feel free to always reach out, especially with feedback at our Facebook page, website, or my email, all linked in the description of this podcast. If you can, please leave me a review on wherever you're listening. Good reviews, as always, will help me find more listeners, and bad reviews will make the show better for you. Thanks to Angie Lee for our logo, my editor, Jojo Tang, Muse Open for our theme, and to you for listening. (laughs) 